to another I Decided series. It's a real privilege today to have a conversation with Al Craig. Al was a local identity in the motorcycle world, but today we're going to have a, a story, a conversation around Al's story so that we get to hear a little bit of a picture of what, what Al's life was like. Now, one of the key things that's actually drawn me to Al was reading his book, and it's called The Al Craig Story, and I was able to receive that from a friend of mine called Al Hogan. One of the things that I've picked up through Al's story is that he is a man of vision. Anyone who's met me through coaching would understand that vision precedes discipline. So I love Al's story because he is a man of vision. He's a man who sees things before many other people see them. And then he's got the guts and the courage to move towards making them happen. So welcome, Al. Good to have you with me today. Good. Thanks. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah. And I have really enjoyed reading your story, particularly as I was a, I was a motorbike racer as a kid. So, oh, wow. So hearing your story about racing uh, really excited me and... It is, it's a true Aussie great story. One thing I share with people quite often is a glimpse is a baby vision, right? So this is where often our main big goals and visions get to, but we just start off with, with a glimpse of what could be. So, so tell me, Al, what was the first glimpse that you had of what you thought about life and where life could take you? And, and where did you start? What's, what's the beginning of the, the Al Craig story? I was fairly entrepreneurial when I was a kid. I used to get up in the morning, go and do a paper run, go to school, go back on a corner selling papers again, and then on Saturday morning go around and collect the money of the ones I delivered in the morning. Okay. So basically my life started as an entrepreneurial type, um, but my I did have a vision for speed, and my first speed was racing push bikes. So I thought the next generation to that would be motorcycles. So my first job was in a motorcycle shop, a little motorcycle shop in, in Cheetah Street, Hamilton, Frank Borkovich's, who I knew right through his life. He passed away only a couple of years ago and we've been friends since I was his first apprentice. Uh, and, and the push bikes I guess we're talking about when you were riding them they weren't like the fancy BMX bikes that we see today. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, they were proper racing bikes. <laughs> My one was uh, a specially built one by Ted Sutherland at, at uh, Tyres Hill because I was only a little tiny fella at, at four, 13, 14 and 15 and, uh, and he built a special, they were called flights. Okay. And they were a special bike. And I was lucky to have a special bike because of my entrepreneurial with the amount of money that I made selling papers. Yes, yes. And I used to take about six quid a week up, and that was a lot of money for a kid. And my father used to work 40 hours a week for about 10 quid a week. He yeah. used to really get cheesed off about me <laughs> earning 10 quid a week, <laughs> uh, six quid a week. So, yeah, that when, when I started working for Frank, I would have loved to have got involved in motorcycles, but my parents wouldn't let me near them. yeah hated motorcycles, so they helped me buy a car. So then the car situation transformed into a sports car. And then I started competition in a sports car. Right. And built my own race car when I was 20 years of age. And where did you race that car? I raced that car at um, Nublar Circuit at Orange, which I won two under 1100cc race car uh, yeah. events. And uh, I held hill climb um, records at Foley's Hill in, in Sydney. Okay. Uh, with that car and it was a great little car. Yeah, so tell me about hill climb racing. 
Well, rock climb racing, uh, I mean, it's, you don't compete with anyone else apart from the, the time slot. So this little thing I built was, um, I built it with a, a, a Singer 9 engine and a Fiat 500 chassis and all that sort of stuff. It was a beautiful little thing. I had quite a few runs up Follies Hill, but I break the record each time, which was yeah, great. Yeah. I've got certificates to prove of those. Wow. Did you ever do the Matara Hill climb? No, Matara was um, was f further on from when I... Uh, yeah, when you raced. Uh, yeah. I yeah. got involved in the Matara Hill climb with bikes. Okay. I was a president of the Autocycle Union at that stage. Okay. And we promoted the, the hill climb and uh, I was the court marshal up and down on the bike and yeah. and so forth. But I had a lot to do with the, the, the inaugural hill climb that was run in Newcastle for motorcycle. We left the uh, push bike racing behind and moved into motorbike racing. Tell me about those early days and, and those parents who weren't real keen on you uh, doing <laughs> yeah. that anyway. Well, they didn't. They, well, my parents, um, unfortunately, at that stage broke up. Oh. And I was at home only with Dad, but once I built the race car, uh, we lived near stables at Hamilton, near the race course. Oh, yes, yeah. And uh, there was a lad in the stables that raced motorbikes. And he came to my shed one day and says, Oh, he said, you, you look like you're pretty handy. He said, you think you can build me a sidecar? I said, what the bloody hell's a sidecar? A little bit more explicit than that because it's in my book. But... What the hell's a sidecar? And he said, oh, it's a motorbike sidecar. Oh, why not? I reckon I could handle it. So I ended up building two for him Right. after that. And, and I thought, well, geez, this is getting a bit boring going to race mountains with these sidecars. I'd better build myself a motorbike and start racing myself. And at that stage, mum and dad had busted up and um, I was home with dad in my little old shed at Hamilton. And, Often used to find me falling asleep under a car or something on the floor and yep. all that sort of You're stuff. You're working the crazy hours. Yeah, so. crazy hours, yeah, crazy hours. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of that was put in down the shed. I built up a Beta Bantam. That was the first race bike I rode and that was in the early 50s. And I got to the stage I thought, oh, this is a bit slow. I better have something a bit quicker than this. So I built myself a 350 BSA and started riding that. Then I bought a 500. And in 12 months, I was in A-grade. So it worked out pretty good. Yeah. And that was my start of motorcycles. Well, obviously, my vision was motorcycles originally. Yes. But after all the car situation, because I worked in car yards and stuff because I'd become a motor mechanic, I worked in, in car yards and and all that sort of stuff before I, uh, before I got involved in bikes. There seems to be a little bit of a transition in life with, with a lot of entrepreneurial type people where where they begin where they have a vision and then soon the vision has them and they can't let it go, you know? Yeah, you're and, right. And, and it just consumes all their thoughts about how yeah. can we improve this? How can we make yeah. it better? How can we make a business out of this? What can we yeah. do to actually grow it just beyond my interest? So tell me a little bit about your transition in that in that place where the vision actually got you and you couldn't let it go. Well, once I started racing and... Um and I started, I got married in 1960 and we built a little house at Mount Hutton. I obviously put a shed in the backyard and I used to do repairs for, on my own bikes but other people's bikes as well and that's where everything all started as far as my business was concerned okay. and that was in 1961. So I, I then uh, carried on for quite a few years and 1967, uh, 1962 I decided to start my business from my backyard 
after working for multiple people that were paying me 14 quid a week and it just wasn't enough to survive because I was paying yeah. 21, quid a four, uh, 21 quid a month off my house and it yeah. was a struggle. So I, uh, I then start, decided to, to start my business from my, my house and I put an application into the council to, to, get a, to get a dealer's licence and they come out and they what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, mate, I'm uh, running a business or trying to make a quid. They said, oh, you can't stay here. This is residential. But in the meantime, in 1965, I built a slot car track in the shop at Bougaroo. Okay. And people were annoying me over night, coming all hours, and I thought, oh, get away out of this. So I built this, slide car, I built this slot car track and made a quid out of it, actually. I was right. open after hours and weekends and stuff. Then in 67, I, I moved the, the business into the shop, and that's where it was for 36 years. Now, I visited your shop in Bullaroo several it's, times it's because it. my dentist was your next-door neighbour. Oh, so, Michael. Yeah, so Michael. So whenever I went to see Michael at the dentist, I would duck in next door and see what the latest bikes were. And Yeah, well, I owned that building when, when Michael first went into it. He okay. was just running it, yep. and he eventually bought it off me, and that paid my shop off, which was great. So, yeah, that was... Uh, then I got involved in, in um, promotions of bike shows and car shows and stuff like that then. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more, because during that time you were developing racing in yourself, but yep. you were also trying to develop the profile of racing across Newcastle area as well. Yeah, I was. I'm not sure of the dates, but I, I was the president, became the president of the Motorcycle Union, which was the controlling body of motorcycle sport. That transformed me into thinking, oh, I could make a quid out, another quid out of this sort of stuff. So, so I decided with um, to start running motorcycle expos. And in 1989, I ran the very first motorcycle expo in uh, in Newcastle at the basketball stadium. I kept running them every year or every two years till the 2000. It got the better of me, like you talk about vision that yeah. captures your own. That's exactly what I did. I run uh, two at the basketball stadium. I run two at Windale Press Boys Club. And I run three at um, the Entertainment Centre at Newcastle. And the last one was in 2000. I had the Holden Dealer team there. And yeah, it was a big show, cars and bikes. Yeah. It was yeah. an enormous promotion. Really yeah. good. I went, to, I went to one of those. Did you? Yes. Which yeah. one? Uh, the one with the Holden dealer team in there oh, as well. That was the last one, 2000, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we, we yeah. moved up here in, in 1986. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we started to kind of see whatever was going on. And, yeah, yeah. And tell me a little bit about the start, too, of the of the raceway up in Newcastle Raceway. Oh, yeah. We promoted a motor mine and I got involved in Speedway with two of my employees. Uh, they wanted to ride Speedway, so we went to Sydney one weekend and bought a, an old Speedway bike. said, okay, and then Morris said Speedway was just starting, which was good, because mm -hmm. we can sort of go out there and learn the ropes. The two of them shared a bike. One one ride one race and the other, and, and I thought, oh my God, this poor old bike's not going to like this very much. But the, I mean, the second or third meeting that we had, my rider ran into the back of a guy that fell off and just wrote the bike off. Oh. I said, oh my God, what are we going to do now? 
So I went to Sydney and bought a brand new Jawar for him. Uh -huh. And um, that was a, that was the start of a, of, of a career for a writer called Bob Valentine. Bob worked for me for quite a few years. He actually worked for me at, at um, Mount Hutton when I, when I started out there. And uh, we were mates, we were in the same club and, and Bob started racing and, and went to England and become uh, an international. And that was a, a credit to me and to him but when he come home, if you, I'd have a brand new bike sitting there waiting for him. Yeah. The interest just carried on. In 1969, quite a few people come to me and said, listen, we're going to build a speedway at Tomago. Do you want to be involved? I said, oh, shit, yeah, why not? So I was on the committee that originally designed the speedway. Um, it, it was financed by Carrington Slipways. And there was two guys that were instigators of it, Barry Smoothie and John McDonald. And uh, they invited me to to control the solo section of it. They made a hell of a mess of the place. Okay. They didn't know what they were doing. So right. Carrington dumped them. One of their senior executives run it for one season. And then I leased it for, from 1972 to 76. So we we run the speedway as well for four or five years. And it was sold to Peter Gerbil, who renamed it. It was originally Jewelry Park, but he renamed it the Newcastle Motodrome. I worked for him for a while, but oh, he was hard to deal with, so I just give it away. But the bike period up there was pretty spectacular. Oh, the short incredible. circuit racing was incredible. Yeah, was right. amazing. I had a lot to do with the Ivan Major Troop. They relied upon me to uh, to organise them when they came into Australia, and you know I got a pretty good name out of all that sort of stuff. And a lot of the speedway riders reckon I was the best promoter to do within Australia. Okay. <laughs> yeah, which was a feather in my cap, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So tell me about your own passion for racing. So you helped a lot of other people oh, get, yeah. get uh, yeah. started in yep. there, and we'll talk yep. about some, some other world superstars in a little while. But yourself, mm. what, what, what was the internal drive that, that you had towards motorcycle racing, and how far did you go with it? Well... As I said before, I, I didn't make A grade from the first part of, of um, getting involved, but I, I I never won anything of any major, but I was uh, always up there. I mean, they knew I was there yep. because I, uh, I won quite a few races and we raced at Solder Creek, Head and Greeter, uh, Gunnedah, Tamworth. We went around a fair bit. No, I, got a, I went all right. Yeah, in the 70s and 80s, uh, Speedway and both car and bike, Yep. Circuits, they were quite spectacular. Yeah, well, they were very far and few between at that stage, but Jewelry Park was was a, a really good circuit and everyone loved it. The way we run it, they all agreed that it was going all right, you know, and it just, we won the very first demolition derby in Newcastle. I was, tw we had 14 out of 28 raindrops that season and I was $20,000, uh, 20,000 quid, I think I might have been, behind and I thought wow. oh my god what am I going to do so Winfield came to me and said listen why don't you run a demolition derby we'll sponsor it oh beautiful <laughs> and we had the biggest crowd we've ever had in the place 10,000 they were parked back to the bridge and I thought wow hasn't that got me out of the shit <laughs> and, yep. it, and it did um, but then just after that, Gerbil came along and bought it, so mm. we didn't do anything much else after that. And there was another couple of um, events that you put through there too, including Ted Mowry. Oh yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, that, oh, oh, that was a crazy setup. That Ted Mowry, 
a partner of mine that we we started doing supercrosses after that. We run the very first supercross in Newcastle at Newcastle Sports Ground in uh, Showground, sorry, Newcastle Showground in nineteen eighty. That was our first promotion. We run quite a few supercrosses after that, of course, but the first one was in Newcastle, and that was a success. So there were there we run a couple at the, the Motodrome when Gerbil had the Motodrome. We hired it, run that, and we got the got the crazy notion to run a blasted jazz concert, and Ted Ted Mulry was the guy. Oh mate, wasn't that a drama to do with those guys? <laughs> oh mate, it's, it's, I've dealt with a lot of speedway riders and car drivers and that, but nothing like those guys. Yeah, those musicians. The same thing oh. that makes them so creative is the same thing that makes them a pain in the ass oh, to work with. You've got to believe it. <laughs> oh mate, some of the stuff they expected us to do. Yeah. And, and I, oh, drove me insane. I don't think we made any money out of the bloody thing either. Yeah. So, yeah. I can't remember that really, but oh mate, it was a nightmare. <laughs> But it's something you do because you think you can. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, because all the oh, all the other promotions that I've done have been successful. Yeah. And I thought, well, why this one be? You know, yeah. oh, mate, that was the dual and end all. But after that, that was in the, in the eighties, early eighties, and in eighty four, we decided to run a a series, an Australian series, Supercross series. Boy, don't I wish I didn't do that. Yeah. We started at Toowoomba. We're all set up. I imported imported two or three Yanks over as well. We had imports. Cost us a bloody fortune. And we started the meeting, got it all set up. Six o'clock, the crowd started coming in. And it rained and it rained and it rained. We could have had speedboat races in the bloody middle. Yeah. Oh, mate, it just filled the place up. We had to hand all the money back. It just went on for hours and hours and hours. I thought, oh, my God. So then we thought, bugger it. We'll come back home and do the last couple at the Newcastle International Sports Centre. They got rained off too. Oh, no. Yeah. Saturday night, rain. So we run it Sunday night. Not successfully. Yeah. Because... You know, you don't get the same crowd. Different demographic. Then we had another one the next week. It rained again. Same thing. Held mm. it Sunday night. Hopeless. Mm. Mm. So that was the end of our motorcycle promotions in Supercross because it just drained us, you know. Yeah. Oh, wait, and we've done the last one in Adelaide at Wavell Showground. That's right. That was expensive with all the bloody... Uh, riders and that we yep. had to put up and oh mate it just went on and on and on and we get it all the track all done all set ready to go and there's people coming in the other end of the show and so what's going on there they double booked it didn't they oh, oh mate well, I don't know where all the money went from that but I didn't see any of it it was hopeless Look, in business, in life, in, in racing, it doesn't matter what you do, we get setbacks. Yep. You know, we get things that, you know, we set up, but then we get set back by yep. them. How do you deal with setbacks? I was just lucky I had the bitters to go back to. Yeah. <laughs> like I said before, I was in, in the shop for 36 years, and in the 1980s, we were the top New South Wales dealer for Suzuki. We used to sell 50 new bikes a month and sell 50 second-hand bikes a month. It was a big show. Mm -hmm. 
I had eight people working there, one part of it. And three in the workshop, a spare parts guy, two salesmen and myself and two two girls in the office. And it was bigger than what you'd ever expect. And but you can come you can come back into your office and you can lose yourself back in business. Yeah. But emotionally, yeah, how do you deal with it? Uh, pretty difficult at times. Yeah. Particularly when you're struggling to pay your bills. I obviously didn't have rent to pay, but I had thirteen uh, no, fifteen hundred dollars a month to find to pay for the building. It was a stretch. Mm. All the hours that I spent, I had an Australia Post contract that I had for many years. I used to work endless hours with that, and all that paid off. Because Supplying it, bikes for Australia Post. No, no, no. repairing them. Repairing bikes. Servicing yeah. and repairing. Yeah, for many years. It's one of the first in Newcastle to, to work on the. Mm-hmm. And, that, and we also had the police bikes, the Hondas. When the police started riding Hondas, we had the contract to, to service the and repair the police Hondas. That was a, that was a good that was a good gig that that helped me out. Most people don't realise what you go through in a business trying to make ends meet. Yes. Do they? No, they. They, they think they it's rarely... all bearing skills. <laughs> they only see the money coming over the counter. They don't see it going out. Yeah, well, I've coached over 250 people now in business and yeah. a lot of them come into it pretty wide-eyed yep. and they don't realise that there's going to be some obstacles and hurdles they've got to jump to get this going. And then it never stops. No. It's our nearly 40th year in business now. Mm. And, and well, I just uh, fell into it, you know, yeah. because because of the bikes and, and, and so forth and, and things just eventuate. You don't realise um, how quick things can move and how you can leave things behind mm-hmm. without even knowing it, can't you? Yeah. So you got into motocross sponsorship and coaching oh, and... gosh, yes, I've done a lot of that. Yeah. Um, so who's I... some of the top people that you've worked with in that space? Well, the most notable one is Chad Reed. Chad um, made it big time in America. He's still there. But I started Chad when he was five. His parents used to come to me with a, a little pee that, that they bought him. It used to keep breaking in half. I said, what? Why is that happening? Oh, he jumps it. Oh, you're kidding. Can't believe it. So I used to strengthen the strength of the frame, repair it and strengthen the frame so he could jump this little pee-wee. And he, he started racing and it was just blitzing him in the smaller classes. And he got a sponsorship with, with um, Woody's Motorcycles in why on on a Honda, a little Honda CR eighty Honda, and uh, they couldn't help him because the kid needed something good, you know. Mm. And he came, his father came to me and said, "Listen, you think you might sponsor Chad? Because Woody's are not doing a real good job." I said, "Yeah, not a problem, mate. But he'll have to ride a Suzuki. He won't be riding a Honda." And he said, "I don't care what he rides, as long as he's got a decent bike." So mm. that's where it all started. And Chad started riding for me and won every junior title you could think of. And he was good. He was bloody good. I sponsored him right through until he was um, eighteen, nineteen. Yeah. On one two fives and stuff, and uh, and we just didn't see eye to eye because he used to push the kids so hard. And, and I did. I objected to that because I didn't think that was necessary with a kid with so much ability. We just parted waves, and he got involved in the, in the uh, Australian Suzuki team. They took him on, thank good, thank God. And um, then he eventually went overseas. I think it was about nineteen or twenty when he went overseas to to um, England originally. 
he started riding for Kawasaki, they give him a start. And he came home after one or two seasons and rode in a supercross at the Sydney Entertainment Centre and he won it quite easily. And we got front row tickets. He jumped the fence, gave me a shirt. Oh, good. After winning. Oh, <laughs> couldn't believe it. I was, wow, that kid hasn't forgotten me, you know. Yeah. He's hardly spoken to me since. Yeah. It's yeah. one of those things, you know. Yeah, well, you move in different circles yeah. and different exactly. areas of life. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I've still got the jersey in my shed. I've seen my photo in the, yeah. in the photo in me, on the front page of my book. He's, the shirt's still in a frame in my yeah. shed. And then there was a bit of a story with uh, Enfield coming to yeah, Australia well, as well. Yeah, in 1994, um, I had sold a, a lady a bike and taught her to ride a scooter oh, back in the 80s. And she came to me one day and she said, oh, and she said, um, my partner's deciding to go to uh, India to try and get the Australian import for Royal Enfield. I said, oh, gee, that'll be great. She said, um, would you like to come? Mm-hmm. I said, well, why? She said, well, he needs a, he needs a, um, for an, a, a mechanical advisor and a technical advisor to go with him to make sure everything is right. And I said, wow, yeah, I'll be in that. So that's when I went over to get the Australian import for Royal Enfield in 1994. And my shop was the Australian import um, office for a couple of years until such times as um, he sold the franchise. But that was in um, in two thousand. I um, I got badly burned in my shop in two thousand and spent two months in North Shore Hospital. Um, and while I was in there, he was giving my staff such a hard time because we had to spend nearly ten hours on those bikes to make them saleable. Yeah. Okay. So, so it wasn't just that they, they were, were dreadful. Yeah. Okay. They were dreadful. Tell me more. What was the problems with the Enfield, and what did you have to do to to Mate, make they, them roadworthy? They had in a beautiful engine. Yeah. The engine was exactly the same as the Pommies built. Okay. Back in the early forties and fifties, beautiful engine, but the rest of the bike was hopeless. No brakes. Nothing on the safety side of things. They mm. were bloody dreadful, and we had to spend a lot of time trying to get the thing serviceable and, and, and with brakes. And roughly about 10 hours we had to spend on them to, to get them saleable. But then I went over the second time and the service manager, Vic Clem, he took me all over India. He gave me a fortnight's holiday. It was incredible. And I had a lot of, they, they started a new um, factory in Japur. Okay. Uh, all dutiful in um, Germany machinery and all that sort of stuff. See, in the old, the old factory, it was all the old crap that the Poms used to use. Oh, it was all obsolete stuff. Some of the stuff they do, I don't want to know about that. You know, <laughs> you, you sort of look at it and say, why, how do they do it? It was incredible. Mm-hmm. It was really crap. I seen a guy doing some flywheels. He's setting a set of flywheels up. He's got this steel hammer on his belt and shit out of these flywheels. And I said, oh, I don't want to see that. <laughs> I don't know why he was doing it, but that's how they did it because that's how they were shown. They didn't know why they were doing it. They were shown how to do it, and that's how they did it. Mm. That's why they were such a bloody terrible motorbike. But the engines were almost impregnable. They were really mm. good. So, yeah, that went over pretty well, and I, I ended up um, going over the second time and on my own. 
that was enjoyable. I liked that. So did they take on any of your uh, improvements or designs? Oh, or yeah. Design? Yeah, well, I had an input into the into the unit construction engine that they were doing. Uh, a lot of things, they went about it the wrong way. And, but a beautiful setup. They had air-conditioned rooms to assemble the engines and mm. all that sort of stuff. You know, it was beautifully done. It's a lovely factory. And I think that's what they're producing those new models from now. Okay. And the new models they're producing now are good stuff. And the frames and the rest of the structure. Well, yeah, they changed all that because they started using um, Harris frames from England. They weren't using their own frames. So it, it sort of got a, a combination between Pommies and, and the Indians. And that's mm. what the And Germans. The yeah, and the, oh, the engineering, oh, the, yeah. the machinery, the German machinery was beautiful. It was really good stuff. Yeah, that, that's a memory I'll never forget, that Indian one with, uh, with Royal Enfield. I really do. And my shop at this stage, the mob in Newcastle, Selham, a bloody hopeless. Actually, what actually happened there, we um, we were selling them and then he sold it to a guy in Victoria, the um, license, and uh, and we were uh, selling bikes for him. He sold it to another bigger uh, franchise and they, they came and saw Brad and they since I was out by then, that was after 03. I would retired in 03. Tell me about your career-ending uh, burn that happened in the... Yeah. The yeah. same with every business, I think. Friday afternoon's always a rush to get everything done. I'm rushing to, to weld a, an old suit base that someone dropped in through the week. My bench was near the door, near the big bone door at the back. I used to use a dust coat over my clothes when I did a job in the workshop so they could just take the escrow off and go back to the counter, you know. I was welding this, this bloody old suit base and it was cracking and banging and spitting everywhere. Next minute, my apprentice wheels a bike out of the back door with fuel oh. running all over the floor and the bloody thing spat, bloody oxy spat back and caught the bloody petrol on fire and caught me dust coat and and I lost all the skin off this hand, mm. trying to put it out. And I had 40% third degree burns on my legs and mm -hmm. back and both my hands. I had no skin left in this hand, just ripped it all off. It was a disaster. I was in rural shore for two months. Came right. home two days before Christmas. That happened in October 2000. Yeah, that was a fright, that one. So you continued on in business after that for yep. another three years? Another three years, yeah. Well, I, well, it was in pressure garments for two years. I pressured garments to my waist and all on both my hands mm. for two years. Yeah, that was a disaster. And I was back at the shop a day or so here and there because and, they wouldn't let me go back to work straight away. But, but then in 2004, I'd recovered. I went to America again with my little mate that that um, served. Well, he started his apprenticeship with me, but he left and went overseas. But he started sand safaris at Stockton, on Stockton Beach, and I uh, helped him get that organised and buying stuff for it, and helmets and all that sort of stuff. And we went over to have a look at some supercross in uh, in America in two thousand four and to watch Chad ride, which was great. But uh, I only saw him for about ten minutes, and he's. His um, manager told me to leave him alone and go away. So yeah. that disappointed me. Yeah. So I spent about 10 minutes with him. Yeah. Anyhow, that was the saddest part of my life then. I didn't like that very much because I'd done so much for that kid and put yeah. him in. But the, but the thing that did make me feel a little bit better 
his manager came up to me and said, Alan, thanks for, for preparing Jen to come over here. Yeah. And I thought, I've won. Yeah, there's certain times where, we, where we'd like some recognition for what has happened over life. Yeah. Uh, and there's other times where you just got to be a silent supporter yep. in the background. Yep. Oh, I've heard plenty of that. Yeah. So who, who, who do you think, uh, when you look across your life, who are the key influences that have made you have the idea and courage to, to get into business or to, to look at these events? Or who are the people that you see now as the, the strong influences of your life? In the back of my book, I did mention a couple of people that were, were influential. The first one I mentioned was Frank Borkovich, who owned Tudor Motorcycles. Yes. We were mates for right from when I worked for him, right through till he passed away a couple of years ago. I used to pick him up on a Saturday morning and take him over to another one of my mates' place up till he was 96. Yeah, wow. And um, he was one of the influences because he had done so much, was successful in so many things. That he, he, I did idolise Frank. I did, yeah. Yeah, who who were some of your key encouragers along the way when you when you kind of felt like, oh, I don't know how I could do this. Who were the people that stood beside you? And I was confident I could do what I wanted to do. Okay. And I did it. And um, I was told a lot of times, oh, how'd you do that? And a lot of people that have read my book have come to me and said, how'd you get time to do all that? How did you get time to do all that? Well, I just made it. You make it, that's right. Just, you don't find time, do you? You no, make time. you just time. make it. You make yeah. it because, because you, back to vision again, that's your vision. I think I can do that, and I've done it. Mm. Every promotion that I did, I knew I could make a success of it, mm. and I did. And my staff were really good. I used to use my staff to help me set up all those things. It was great, and they used to sort of put in a few hours and that after after work and help me promote and set up all my expos and all that sort of stuff. They were really good. But I looked after my staff. I looked after my staff. They were good. Now you're a little bit older, yep. a little bit wiser. Yeah. What what's what's a piece of information that you would pass down to someone who's who's looking to start a business or looking to start a a challenging career or or pursue a dream or find their vision, what would be the advice that you would pass down to them? It's bloody hard work. I put a lot of time into my business. And what I see that I've got now, I know that that was why I work so hard. I still own my shop. I collect rent every week. I own my home. I own everything. And I have a very happy life with... I had three daughters. We've had eight grandchildren. We've got eight great-grandchildren. And it's great. Life is good. Yeah, with all the business left behind and it's relationships that are critical, aren't they? Oh, so much so. Yeah, so much so. I mean, family is, is so important to me and I think it should be important to a lot of people, particularly if they work hard to provide for them. I would like to think that, that I brought my two or three girls up with principal, they've done the same with their families. It's great. How long have you been married now for, Al? 62 years. 62 years in November. <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh, great. And tell me about your wife. How has she stood by you through all this journey of life? Well, she realised that all the time that I spent at my shop and all the work that I did was for a reason. Mm -hmm. And she knows now the reason. 
because we've got everything we ever wanted. We don't want for anything. We're pretty lucky. Mm. We're not we're not wealthy, but we're comfortable. It makes a big thing to to be able to. She's had a fair bit of sickness in the last uh, three or four months. I've been in in around in and out of hospital a fair bit, but she's pulled through it all right. But um, she can't walk very far either. She's got a, a crook hip. She's happy with our little house. Has your wife supported you through the business? Never helped. Okay. Never helped. But she she was there. She was there for me. When I went home, there was a meal there. Mm. Always. It wouldn't matter if I could turn up at 10 o'clock at night, there was a meal sitting there waiting for me. Yeah. And a lot of times it was that time. Yeah. <laughs> Did she have a career of her own? No, she worked for the store originally. I don't know whether you remember yeah, the store. She the worked store. for the store when the last... Uh, just before we got married, she got moved out to uh, New Lambton. She worked as a checkout chick out, out at New Lambton, but she worked in the produce department uh, in the office in the early years. But she worked out at, um, out at New Lambton, and, and when she got married, they, they uh, sacked her because they weren't going to keep married women on. So that was the story that ended that career. But, uh, yeah, no, she... Uh, how did you meet? Uh, she lived around the corner from me. Okay. And Just we danced. We danced together. We we won jitterbug competitions and all sorts of things in okay. the in the seventies. Uh, yeah, we uh, we met just around the corner. Amazing. And yeah. now now you're you're the president of of a Newcastle Classic Motorcycle Club. Yeah. I've been since two thousand and five. Yeah, I think this is my last year though. Of, um, Hang the gloves and helmet and boots yeah, up? Yeah, sort of. Uh, I hold a, quite, quite a few positions in the club. I'm, I'm the president, also uh, I'm the plate registrar, which handles all the registrations mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And, and I, at the moment, I'm full bore on a, on a swap meet at, at Maitland okay. on, on Sunday. My head spinning like crazy at the moment, but We'll get there. The rain's not making it any easier for us. That's a lot. One day, Al, your life is going to be reduced to a sentence or maybe a paragraph. Yeah. And they'll tell a story about Al Craig. And, and yeah. there there is a book, which is pretty special, but yeah. it'll just be reduced back to something simpler, like that sentence or paragraph. What yeah. would you like that to say? Oh, he tried hard and he succeeded. That's a simple sentence. Most people I interview have, have another three or four paragraphs of them. <laughs> <laughs> they want to tell me, and I'm thinking that's not going to fit onto uh, no, a little no. plaque somewhere. No, no. <laughs> but no, that's good. He tried hard and he succeeded. They're good words. Yep. So. And I treated people the way I would have liked to be treated myself. That's a That was my philosophy to all my staff. If anyone, if I heard one of my staff go and cook it, someone would say, hey, mm. hey, that's not the way to do it. You treat that customer the way you would prefer to be treated yourself. And that was my philosophy through my whole business career. And I hope that that left me in good stead with all my customers. And there's still customers coming back to my shop that I had. That's great advice. My, uh, one of my apprentices has got it now. He uh, he served his time with me. And when I retired in 03, he took it over and he's still there. When I started business, I remember one of my early mentors, he said to me, if you want to build a business, love people. Yep. And, and if there you are love, some people you can't. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of people you might not like. Yeah. 
but um, but you still got to love them. Yep. You still got to be patient and kind and careful with them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Look, I, I really, really appreciate your time today. I appreciate right. hearing some more of the Al Craig story, yep. and thank you for for laying down a bit of uh, a bit of voice for us today, where we can encourage some young people to pick up their dreams, find their vision, and run with it. Is there anything you'd like to say? to finalise our, our time together. I've quite enjoyed this because this is similar to what I went through with my book with Al. We sat in my shed for two or three hours every Saturday afternoon for nearly two years to record that book. I'm very proud of my book. So am I. I, I loved reading it. I've, I've, I've moved 360 of them. England, America, China, New Zealand. Well, it's a great story, Al. And you are a, a Newcastle living legend. Oh. You've changed the face of what happened in this space for many other people. You've trained staff, you've grown them, they've they've gone on, and some of them have even retired now. Yep. But they've changed the face of what's happening in motorcycling around Newcastle. And you've launched careers for people. You've you've opened events. You've set motodromes in place, and, and you've encouraged a lot of people. And, and I want to thank you for what you've contributed to our business community and to our Newcastle community. I really want to thank you for following a dream and, and living living with a passion so that others can be benefited by your life. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed every minute of it. It was a great opportunity to catch up with Al. Uh, he is an amazing man and I just learned so much from him about determination in order to succeed. In January, we'll have a conversation with Alan Clements. Alan's now retired from the Air Force but had a highly decorated career with the Air Force, and you will really enjoy his story. Alan represented Australia in America during the Trump administration. He's an acrobatics pilot. He was Commandant of the Australian Defence Force Academy, and he will share with us many other insights about an amazing life and career. Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. All the best to you and yours. And thanks again for listening to our I Decided series. Mm -hmm.